Within the depths of the strip mall of the damned lies a decrepit video store, long since shuttered. Past the dusty shelves, empty save for spiders, spinning their patient webs, beyond the ancient bat-wing doors guarding the sepulchre, where once were hidden the perverse and heretical, a secret society assembles to scrutinize those films which are rumored to drive viewers to madness and dissolution. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. We, the brethren of the Lens, pound to convene to judge this offering of cinema worthy of our esteem. To be cast down as worthless hokum. Let us die as in judgment. We return once more from recess, spirits cleansed of Cinemania, and will hereby resume our scrutiny of Jerzy Skolimowski's 1978 film, The Shout. The story so far. The Society has judged and found guilty Jerzy Skolimowski's 1978 film, The Shout. This psychosexual drama is a story about a story told by a sociopathic narcissist at an asylum cricket match, which features Alan Bates, John Hurt, Susanna York, and Tim Curry. The themes raised by this movie provoke the society to a prolonged discussion about the power of story to define reality, as well as abuse by charismatic psychopaths claiming magical powers. Before the meeting could be adjourned, Brother Ethan asked the society to remain in session so they could interview a special guest expert on the subject of the occult. And with that, let us rejoin the conclave still in session. Oh, Brother Ethan, you mentioned a, a you room. mentioned a guest would be. It's in the guest Shut room. up! Shut! Go away, you ancient dungnut! Shall I get the sherry? A guest would be joining us. I have a special guest. I shall be wheeling out or asking Brother Methuselah to wheel out. We've got a. He's at the door. He's been knocking at the door. Let me get the door. That being my title and all. Don't worry, I'll get it. The odds of you being struck by lightning a second time is impossible to fathom. Get up there. All right, but I'll be talking to human resources. I might go. Brethren, I would like you to welcome to our conclave, Alex. Alex goes by Trash Shaman. Please introduce yourself to the conclave, Alex. Hi, Brother Ethan, and hi to all of the brothers, and thank you for having me in your wonderful podcast. I'm what you could consider an expert in the occult matters, mainly as a user end of the product. And I chose that moniker because in my pursuit of pooky uh, knowledge, I have to deal with a lot of human garbage. And uh, <laughs> when Brother Ethan showed me this movie, I was all fine and dandy. I was looking at the occult elements and all of that. And then I realized that the villain of the movie, it was ringing all of my alarms. It reminded me of a lot of people and a lot of uh, organizations that uh, prey on the unwary, mainly because we are all seeking uh, for answers and we are usually easily fascinated by these types. So that would be me. <laughs> I certainly was fascinated by this figure as a, as a young fellow. You mean the, the, the movie's villain? Uh, Yes, yes, I was yeah. very fascinated by him. I was taken in. 
As I had mentioned during the judgment section, I really felt that this actor gave a commanding performance of a sociopathic narcissist, you know, someone who really seeks to use his charisma in a way that allows him to, to bring them under his power. And you had had some thoughts and some feelings about how that character had been portrayed. And can you tell us more about why he was raising some red flags for you? Yes, you see, mystical imposters or just con artists they will approach you in a methodology that it repeats itself, usually has four steps. And the progression in the movie, from the moment Crossley meets the husband till the very end, uh, you can see those steps so clearly, I thought I was looking at a documentary. And as a matter of fact, I refused for a moment to believe that the film had any possibility that maybe it was not a supernatural film, until Brother Ethan told me, look, this is an unreliable narrator. He might just as well be a loony seeking attention and not an actual, call it sorcerer or whatever, right? And uh, until he pointed that out, I was so engrossed by this character that I refused to see anything else. And then I realized, could it be possible that just a simple movie villain managed to convince me that, no, no, this movie is exactly and precisely about the supernatural and there cannot be no other interpretation. And then I realized it is. And that reminded me, because it hit home, the place I live, which I'd rather leave it out, is uh, very popular due to destructive cults. Usually it, the same pattern of signing off your real estate to a cult leader and then going either to suicide or uh, being engaged through tiring practices until a heart failure happens. In this movie, if I may bore you to death, <laughs> uh, as I was saying, there is there's four steps to the con artists of the mystical variety. The first is the claims of a cosmopolitan background. This guy approaches you with a very mannered way uh, until you assume that since uh, the man has uh, traveled all around the world, must have uh, experienced a lot of things. It must, it must be of an open mentality. And probably since he doesn't look a complete idiot, has something interesting to say. And that you see it in the movie precisely when he, when he starts talking about Australia and his uh, travels and uses exactly that, gauge the audience. Uh, sorry, not actually the audience, the, the one that's watching the movie, but the relationship between the husband and the wife. Because first, he fascinates. Then he introduces escalating tales that, of course, you cannot immediately verify. The practice of aborting the children. I'm not very sure if that is a real thing in the Aboriginal culture of Australia, but it manages to shock the wife and puts a wedge between them. And then it goes straight into the third phase where this guy is giving uh, suggestions that there is maybe a supernatural element, things that, uh, that the husband would like to participate in. But at the same time, he's pushing him away from the wife. Like, look, she's hysterical. She's a you know, stereotypical bad woman. You can, you can see this guy's a clear misogynist and a manipulator at that. And the scene where he demonstrates the shout, if you notice, he puts him through a lot of physical exertion. He makes him walk around uh, until he drops or rolls down a dune. As the, uh, as the viewer, you might think, no, the shout actually happened. It is also another red flag. The cults usually uh, put their initiates, or rather their victims, through strenuous physical activity. Sometimes I've, uh, locally here, I've heard the practice of making you recite the alphabet backwards, on and on and on and on, on an empty stomach. Horrible stuff. <laughs> And when, uh, after he demonstrated uh, the shout, you can see that he cuts communication with the husband 
approaches the wife, which, is, which has been left vulnerable, not because she's a woman, but because she has the lack of support that her husband is. You can also see in the movie that apparently she's not as sociable as the husband. She has nowhere else to turn to. At least the husband has the, has the shoemaker to interact with uh, his parish at the church. Uh, he plays the organ, all of that. So the fourth phase is keeping you hooked by making you believe that you're going to, to, to miss out. As you can see, this guy becomes very brash, very prone to mood swings. It makes the husband feel afraid that maybe if he doesn't comply completely to all of his demands or whatever they might be, he will miss the chance of witnessing a second shout or going deeper into it. And then, of course, they play on your fear of uh, actually finding out that you've been played. Because if you notice, he keeps on going back to Crossley, even to the point when the guy kicks the chair across the room and tells him to move out because he's going to have sex with his wife. He's still in the middle of a haze of this cannot be happening. And that is all because if he, if the husband realized at that moment, look, I've been an idiot all along, that would destroy him in his uh, psychology, even more than whatever Crossley could do. And that is why we, we witnessed the mental breakdown at the end of the, of the film. The guy is so destroyed by this notion that he had been an idiot all along that he cannot live with himself anymore. I, I just occurred to me that what he tells you as an unreliable narrator, this is a true story, but he's going to vary the details. You just laying out the way that that plays out with a, with a, a pathological narcissist, cult leader, con man person. He's telling the story about what he does to people. And, you know, this is this plays out the same way in any interaction with anybody else. He just varies the details. So he's telling a true story, which is another thing about people who have a, a you know, a psychopathology is that they tell you usually right out front. And then tell them, yeah, they tell the truth on themselves, you yeah. know, first oh. thing. And then it's on you whether or not you believe them. Like, that's just a classic thing. Like, that, you know, people, bad people tell you they're bad people. Listen to them because they're telling you the truth. Before we continue any further, I do feel another ritual cleansing is called for. We shall prepare the soaps and our many tools and our communal bathing basin that we all will stand in together and we will enjoy with each other the ritual cleansing of commercial enterprise before we go on. Uh, okay. I swear <laughs> capitalism brings me to a lather. But you know why the bad people are usually the object of fascination of their victims? I mean, in, of the people that are, like in this case, of vulnerable persons. You see, uh, you know archetypes, the Jungian uh, theory that there is something common to all of us in the sense of that we recognize some certain patterns as intrinsic to human psychology. In other words, if we see an athletic guy in spandex in the middle of the street, you might not immediately assume that the guy is nuts. You probably think that must be a superhero, or maybe they're shooting a superhero movie. Well, the figure of the shaman, one classic figure in cinematographic terms is Master Yoda in Star Wars. And if you notice a thing, Yoda doesn't teach by explaining it as if it were an Ikea manual. Doesn't tell Luke Skywalker, look, you do this, you take three breaths and you continue. No, no, no. He goads him. He puts him in a series of tests that the, the initiate must fill out, in the, fill out the blanks with the expectation. That is what a shaman is. It, it, it is an archetypical figure of trust. 
So when somebody confesses a horrible thing or a methodology of exploiting people, you do not wish to believe that this is happening, first of all. You do not want to be close to this person also. But as a survival mechanism, you try to be the most agreeable with them, lest should you be put in danger. And then you start thinking, well, okay, this person is bad, but from the moment they open up to me, maybe they were bad because they had a good motive, if there is any. You immediately start filling in the blanks. And this is what Crossley also does in the movie. He just comes up to you, tells you he's killed six of his born children. And uh, when questioned, why would you do that, you piece of shit? <laughs> the guy says, well, because I didn't plan to stick around. He shows this in such a natural manner that from the sheer shock of processing the information, you have no other choice but to agree because it shocks you. If you also notice how Crowsley gets into the, into the husband's house, he just sits there in front of his house and walks right in. Just think about it. If some unknown guy showed up to your house when you are returning from, from your job and he's just sitting in there, what would most of us do? Probably, you know, you try to gauge the situation to see if the guy is armed or if he's dangerous or if he needs help. A lot of people would probably think, look, uh, maybe I've been homeless. Maybe some of my friends have been homeless. Maybe I can let this man come inside, have a shower, have a warm drink or whatever, and then send him on his way. You want to believe that there is a, a, a little humankind that's left in this world. And since we don't see it around, you usually think, then it's up to me. And that is how they get you. They play on your martyr complex. It's not a bad thing because you want, to, you want to make things be better. But the problem is thinking that you are going to make the difference. And you are going to make the difference with this piece of shit, <laughs> especially well, and, if they ever find your body. Yeah. And, and people too, by and large, uh, the studies have shown like human beings are statistically bad at risk assessment. Very bad <laughs> at it. But the flip side of it is the majority of people think they are good at it. So being in those situations where you think you've assessed something and then even being presented bald-faced, oh, I murdered my 18 children, this creates this cognitive dissonance. Like, but I've assessed this person as being safe. I don't want to accept the alternative because I trust my own judgment. So they just kind of like look for the ways to justify that in their own heads. But right. once you've made that initial judgment, oh, I'm going to judge this person as safe. I'm staking something of my reputation on that. I'm yeah. making this decision, therefore I'm a rational being. Then as you make another step and another decision and another, you've got more to lose by turning around and saying, oh, I was wrong all along. It turns out he's been tricking me. And you've yep. got more to turn around and say, I've been fooled all along. And it's harder to do that the more steps you've taken and the more times you've, you've agreed to a little step forward. Well, yeah. and ha it has been shown that, you know, it's being proven you're wrong actually causes pain on the same level as physical pain. Yeah. Oh, and, really? Yeah. yeah. And that I mean, Alex, very interesting. what you were saying before about um, like how there's, there's sort of like gradual steps of introduction more and more into the potential occult or, or power of, you know, that this, you know, that this personage, right, this cult figure is, is offering mm -hmm. and you don't want to miss out, right? I mean, certainly they've seen that uh, manipulative cults, that is what they do. They have very like prescribed steps along the way to gradually invite you a little bit further, a little bit further in. So you invest a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So you don't, even if you start to see things that 
raise those red flags and you actually see them, you don't want to back out because you've already invested so much, right? There's that this sunk cost fallacy. Exactly. Beat me to it. Yes, exactly. And also the need for appraisal because when mm -hmm. a mysterious person approaches you, 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 I've also seen this in uh, lots of uh, cryptocurrency scams, by the way. Uh, when the deeper they, the deeper they snag you in, they'll tell you things like, "Look, I've noticed that you are smarter than the rest. You are caught above everyone else." Mm -hmm. And then you think this person is opening up to me their, their deepest secrets, their, their livelihood. That must be because I'm somebody worthy of that. But what they're doing is they're just opening your wallet. <laughs> That in the best of cases, because locally, I'll just put it <laughs> yeah. briefly in one line. Mm. Uh, we had a case of a girl who fled the country when she was just exactly 18 years, when she could mm -hmm. purchase a ticket on herself. But she had been manipulated by a guy since almost age 12. And it began with, wow. the, with, with the small increments of, I'm learning uh, her first handle spell works and all of that, you know, the typical entry-level teenage witchcraft, you would call mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, after a while, this guy said, look, I'm going to be straight with you. Uh, obviously, the world is going to end. And he was telling it to her instead of everybody else in the group. Why? Because, of course, he was interested in a very young, impressionable teen. Mm -hmm. But she thought, oh, this guy is telling it to me because I'm above everybody else in the group. And the end result, they found her thankfully alive in the jungle. She returned back to, to the country, but she came with a child in tow, a child of the, of the cult leader, who, by the way, was living in the middle of the swamp somewhere in South America and was actually producing child pornography with his own children, which had, he had been fathering with local women. Yes. Oh, my God. We are usually also very sensitized towards uh, easy horror. Jason Voorhees, for example, you see that guy bursting through your door, you know already what you have to do. But you do not want to believe that people are capable of sustained evil. You understand the impulsive need to kill, rape, or rob someone. You say, okay, this guy has very impulse control. But when you realize that somebody can do that for years, just to take your daughter away, it's boggling. You do not wish to believe it's true, but it does happen. The, uh, you kind of uh, we kind of skimmed past this already, but like one of the things that I wanted to to kind of touch on, we were talking about when they're initially hooking someone, basically using people's humanity and their desire to be kind and polite as as you know weaponizing those against the people who use them, you know like. We all want to have normal human conversations. We all want to interact with people. But when you have a malignant narcissist, basically someone who is a predator of people, you know, the way that they use your inclinations to politeness as springboards to their outlandish and horrifying claims, you know, like, for example, he's saying, I killed all my children, you know, which are intended to sort of blitzkrieg your your psychological defenses and push you into your amygdala state. So, so hijacking your emotions is extremely effective at achieving psychological domination. You know, we can see this on a grand scale with, you know, we saw this with, with Trump, for example. He's able to say things that get right down into that lizard brain, which, is, you know, your rational thought, and this is the thing that, that really is the failing of the enlightenment era is everybody is like, well, if you just educate people and get them thinking rationally by habit, no, we are emotional creatures. We're not rational creatures. We make emotional decisions that we then later rationalize intellectually because our prefrontal cortex is downstream from the amygdala. The amygdala is in charge. If consciousness is formed by a conclave, much like our, our little group here, 
the amygdala is the 500 pound gorilla who is like, shut the fuck up, we're doing this now. You know, and everybody's like, oh, okay, okay. You know, and your, your prefrontal cortex is the, is the 98 pound weakling who happens to have an IQ of 250, but you know, can't punch their way out of a wet paper bag. You know, and the amygdala is like, nope, survival reflex, let's get you in there. So it's really effective at shutting down executive function, rational thought, you know, and, and, and putting you into that state. And people you know, like Crossley in this movie, but you know, like these, 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 these grand sociopaths that, that are kind of running society, are really effective at at triggering trigger sorry are really effective at triggering your amygdala and putting you into that fear state into that lizard brain state. Um, yeah. Much as I hate to admit anything positive about the son of a bitch, Steve Bannon had a point when he said politics is downstream from culture, which is why they folks like him focus on igniting cultural wars because they get people fighting over emotional stuff and. Then, if you can get them retelling the story to themselves, then you can affect where politics flow from there. That's the sort of the politics of the big lie. I don't. I'm sorry. I'm getting off onto a tangent here. Tribalism right? and the tendency of creating false memories. That's what they play you on. They don't yeah. give you so solutions in, in, in your eyes. And for one last time, and I assure you, it's the last time I will herd you all into the collective bathing receptacle. We must cleanse our bodies alone and with each other, applying the soap readily, the soap that is called advertisement. It's lubricating my skin. <laughs> I think there is no response to that. <laughs> it's not lubricating I was just my mind. Say that's slippery sure. in a very sensual way. In effect, the, the terror shout may not be real, but the terror is very real and can affect us and can cause us to do things and should be something we're all aware of. Very well that is why, this is why some of the most ancient uh, methods of killing somebody through sorcery, anthropologically speaking, are not doing something behind their backs. It's actually making it public. In Louisiana and New Orleans, it was a, a one of the practices to leave the dolls at somebody's doorstep or even more horrifyingly nail a rooster to the door when you would see that you would just uh, psych yourself into an early grave by playing on your nervous system so that is also one of the things i wanted to mention how but admittedly my study of occultism you know what or what some people also call chaos magic is limited i mean i've studied as i said psych uh, physiology and clinical psychology to a degree. Um, and I understand that a large part of the cult practice is psychology, you know, which is to say sort of whether positively or negatively hijacking the placebo slash nocebo effect for the benefit of either the subject, the practitioner, or both. Just for those listeners, they don't necessarily know the placebo effect is when your brain affects a positive change in the body because it's been influenced by an outside source. So like commonly a sugar pill, nocebo is when the brain affects a negative change for a similar reason. So for example, if you tell someone they're going to feel better after you give them a pill or say a blessing, they often do. Or if you tell them that this pill you give them has side effects, those side effects will sometimes manifest. Or if you pronounce a curse, like you tell someone the land is cursed, then suddenly it doesn't produce anything. Well, it's because these people have been influenced to think, well, this land isn't going to produce anything. So I don't put in as much effort into it. Um, and the placebo effect is inarguably powerful. I mean, double blind studies have shown effect sizes can be greater than 50%. Um, 
for in the US, uh, in order for a new drug to be approved by the FDA, it has to demonstrate an effect size greater than placebo. Um, and what's interesting is that many psychiatric medications have effect sizes only marginally better than placebo. So what I, what I wanted to ask you is that, so it, because the human mind is a pattern recognition machine and it's how we survived as hunter gatherers and we were really good at recognizing patterns even when there is no pattern there and they're in play whether we want them to be there or not. Um, like for example, like you, you learn a new word and then within 48 hours you hear it again or you get fixated on a specific number let's say like the number 23 and suddenly you start seeing things adding up to 23. Um, how would you parse the practice of magic as being like hacking the placebo effect via pattern recognition abilities of the brain versus things that are legitimately inexplicable? There is a worrying trend with the uh, I, I rather like to call the occult as I refer to it as sorcery, because etymologically speaking, comes from the root word to sort out. And that is what most of rituals, most of practices consist about. Uh, the only way to, to know if what you're doing is inducing hysteria on yourself or the body to kick in and heal whatever troubles you have or the mind is when you are doing something that you do not need the recognition of others to demonstrate. For example, most of the practices we are familiar with through either Hollywood or uh, the things we know involve uh, group rituals, involve an audience. That is also what the, what the shamans do. They induce uh, a certain mental state on a person to create changes, whether for good or bad. That's on the, on the primitive scale. Now, what I want to say is that most people go into the occult thinking that it is a very easily demonstrable practice and that they just need to follow a series of steps when it usually requires a buildup. Because the moment you are doing actual, uh, an actual veritable effort, what you're doing at most is forcing the causal flow of reality. In other words, some people want to get easily rich with, with, with magic and all of that, right? They do their thing and they think they're going to win the lottery. Well, if you didn't buy the ticket, will be no possibility for that. If you didn't have a job, you wouldn't get a possibility of a raise. What usually happens is that people convince themselves that something has happened, false memory, and they justify it, so they start believing in their own power. But very few people are willing to do the real practice and the, the grueling task, which is, for example, telling somebody, look, you're going to get up every single night from 12 till three in the morning, you're gonna just sit down and you're gonna start repeating a certain word patterns, incantations, whatever, and you're going to do this every day for a week without failing once. Most of people give up. We've also seen, for example, that the human body uh, can be worked to, to extremes of, uh, how you call this in English again? <laughs> yeah, of development. But with all the science we have today, 99% of us are not really fit or in shape, right? Because it takes a considerable effort to even start. That is also what happens with the, with the occult. 90% of it is group hysteria and convincing yourself that something has happened. The remaining 10% requires of you to reach a certain mental state of belief and then snowball the effects. 
So the only thing that I would say in this movie that has a supernatural element, you would say, hey, this looks like the real deal, is when Crossley finds the belt buckle, or shoe belt buckle of the wife. Nobody knows that he has it. He doesn't even show it to the victim. He just manipulates it, somehow gets his wife to be more complacent. In a way, there is the result you're seeking. It did not depend on the validation or the belief of anybody else. It happened, you did it in secret, and that's what you get. And that is the only way of demonstrating the capabilities that, hey, this really works. The only thing is that I would like to, to warn any, any listeners is that the occult should be taken as a hobby. I think it's something interesting that, uh, that you check every, every once in a time, and that's about it, because otherwise the cost is very high, both monetarily and in disappointment. And unless you're willing to put yourself through a lot of discipline, it's better not to make your life center around it, especially around people who you think that your results will depend. In the case of the movie, the, the antagonist. Mostly. I mean, that, that's been really fascinating. Uh, you've raised some really remarkable points, especially about the buckle being the only thing nobody else sees. None of us mm -hmm. picked up on that as being the only truly supernatural element. And that's brilliant. Yeah, no, Thank that was you. those were the issues I was having with the film. And you've kind of put your finger on it of like, most of this doesn't feel like it's really a supernatural film to me, just a psychological manipulation film. But you kind yeah, of when you when you look at it, there's only one real element that you have to suspend disbelief for. Yeah. And you've you've really um, you've really picked that out, and you've you've put a different gleam on the film for us all there, and that's been wonderful. And thank you very much for providing your your guidance and uh, your expertise. Yeah, you're welcome. I hope <laughs> we can. Uh, I hope we can rely on you in the future if we ever need your expertise again. And could you tell us is there any way for our listeners to uh, see more of your your writings if they want to learn more about what you have to say? Oh, thank you so much. Uh, around the end of 2019, I began a blog to warn my closest friends of any impending doom as we've gone through. And uh, with time, I realized that uh, the, the hysteria brought up by, by the isolation got a lot of people into doing very awfully stupid things. And as a matter of fact, I used to follow a, a known occultist called EA Coating, and his channel on YouTube got uh, blocked and disabled because one of, the, one of the people who was in his forums thought it would be a wonderful idea to murder two girls in a park, thinking that would get him. Yeah. So after that incident, I aim to educate people free of charge always because this is a hobby. The occult is a very nice hobby, but it makes people do horrible things because they are seeking a shortcut. Example is human or animal sacrifice. Many people think that if you do such a horrible act, that you will get great results, which should lead the question, did it work for the Aztec or the Mayan empire? They wanted corn and all they got were Christianity and the Spaniards. Yes, I am to educate, write articles on where should you start if you have such interest in that. And you can find this in uh, my blog, which is trashshaman.blogspot.com. Com. I'll provide the link and whatever you need. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I put my ramblings there. So I'll probably move into a video format because I understand that a lot of people don't have time to read the horrible walls of text I plop there mercilessly. <laughs> <laughs>
Because <laughs> it's like, hey, when I want people, 2,000 words, yeah, deal with it. No. Well, we'll be uh, we'll be providing your link uh, in, in in along with our own podcast. And thank you very much. This has been wonderful. And thanks for your time. You've been very mm. enlightening to all of us. Yes, thank you very thank much uh, for joining us, Alex. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, sadly, this conclave, as all conclaves, must once come to an end. And so I formally announce this conclave to be concluded. That episode of the Cinemania Society featured Andy Slack, Ethan Ireland, Zachariah Burks, Daniel Scribner, Andre Luke Martinez, and special guest, The Trash Shaman. Produced, mixed, and mastered by Ethan Ireland, graphic design by Andy Slack, music by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio, visit our website at thecinemaniasociety.podbean.com and check out our social media feeds. We're on Twitter at TCS underscore Cinemania. And if you like what you heard, please rate and review wherever you found us. Mention us on social media or find us on Ko-fi to throw us a few bones. We love to make fun stuff for folks, but it isn't free. Anything and everything helps. Coming soon, the Cinemania Society will be creating pieces of video media, short films and the like. So stay tuned, Cinemaniacs. The Cinemania Society is a production of the Cinemania Society, LLC.